If you're, if you're down, down Caraway, just call Mitchell Toll. Or in Patterson Lakes, just call Mitchell Toll. Anywhere Bayside, just call Mitchell Toll. Buy a summer house, just call Mitchell Toll. Mitchell Toll. Real estate. Oh yeah, a little real estate. We want more. <laughs> I'm Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. It's a beautiful balmy night here in the Karam Karam. And so lucky to be able to broadcast to you for tonight's conversation. As always, you can join us on the text line, send through your questions to 0493 213 831. And if you miss those numbers, just hit contact us on Instagram at Radio Architecture. My conversation partner this evening is Andrew Gall, a structural engineer and the director of consultancy Argyle, founded in 2017. With a passion for complex design and breaking the mould, Andrew has extensive experience across sport, tertiary education, the arts and zoological fields, as well as community, commercial, residential and multi-res projects. Argyle challenges the status quo by bringing bespoke, people and service-orientated structural and civil engineering consultancy to support and inspire sustainability practices and innovation. Welcome to the program, Andrew. It's great to be here. It's so good to have you on, and you're the first structural engineer to join me. Not the first engineer, but the first structural no, engineer. Well, so I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> re- representing uh, the, the side that keeps us grounded. That's right. As we work on projects. Yeah. <laughs> the first question I like to ask all my guests, I know you're a listener of the show, so you've, yeah. you've prepared this one. And that's, what's your earliest memory of a building or place? Well, it's really interesting. I probably wasn't really conscious of this until I until I started listening to your program and I actually delved back into my memory banks to have a bit of a think about it. Um, I grew up on a, on a farm uh, in northeast country Victoria, just out of Shepparton and Shepparton was um, our hub. So uh, before I went to school, my mum would take me into town to go shopping. Uh, so, so this is in the late 80s. Um, and uh, if we were shopping in the middle of town, um, we would go to the multi-storey car park. Um, and I think at the time, with the exception of the telecommunications tower there that had an observation deck, it may have been the tallest building in Shepparton, which was pretty cool, and we got to park in there every time we went in, and I really enjoyed being inside the building. It's one of those old sort of stereotypical, brutalist concrete car parks with you know, imperfections in construction and spalling and stains on the concrete. So you get that real sense of sort of texture. Um, and um, and the car park had a, a lift shaft that was external to it, sort of similar to like a, you know, Erno Goldfang, uh, Goldfinger sort of brutalist building from that post-war era where, um, yeah, the lift shaft was external to the structure and, and the lift, um, I used to love pushing the button in the lift. The lift had this kind of yucky 
uh, linoleum sort of shopping centre style floor in it, but it had these buttons that were amazing. It had three buttons and the buttons lit up when you pushed them and they were this beautiful old ivory plastic and in order to push the button you had to sink your finger into your first knuckle um, and then that would light up and the thing would ding and it would shudder and do all sorts of things. It was, um, uh, it was a bit scary but it was good fun. Um, and the other really cool thing about the building that I loved was um, externally it had car park written in individual letters that extended from the top of the lift shaft down to the bottom, sort of similar to those like Googie style. Super graphics, like yeah, gigantic. Yeah, yeah. So it was like kind of like um, that Googie style Southern California space age architecture that like John Lautner did in the sort of 50s and 60s and stuff. And, and it's interesting. I didn't really realise it at the time, but that was probably the point where I started to become, as I got older, more interested in that kind of architecture and, and just brutalist architecture in general. And then that fusion of structure and architecture and structure creating architectural form. That's a really natural regression right there. Yeah. How yeah. old were you when you decided to become a structural engineer? Um, look, I, I probably I probably um denied for a while in terms of architecture and engineering through um, my late teens, but I think I was kind of encouraged to push into, into engineering just because of um, my strength and passion for sort of science and mathematics um, and, um, and because of the diversity, I guess, in engineering, but I, I, I didn't really divert I kind of pushed straight back into um into buildings and and design have you found that you've been able to really honor your love for design while practicing as a structural engineer I have I have look I was, I've been really I was really fortunate in my first role straight out of uni um uh working uh with Peter Felicetti who'd had relationships with Fender Casolitis and some amazing architects where he was an architect himself and sort of had a passion for fusing the two things um so I got to work um in an environment where I, I was able I was able to kind of better understand architecture and and work in an office where all the engineers had a real appreciation for architecture and it was interesting, you know, talking with um, people that had graduated, they'd gone in different directions, how potentially that wasn't the way that they saw things, but it came really naturally to me. Yeah. Mm. That the love of the building, the possibility of the architecture. Yeah. That's really critical in successful collaborations between architects and engineers, that we can understand that passion that we both share. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think that's, um, you know, and, and and listening to your discussion with Amy um, the other day, um, the importance, I think, of collaboration between uh, the architect and the client, um, I think that that extends to um, the, the secondary consultants and the architect as well. Um, and I think especially in that fluid design phase to maximise the value and the potential of the design, it's really important to have, you know, round table discussions with all parties to maximise, you know, the potential of the design. And, and, and a big part of our practice is, um, is working to try and instill structural intelligence into the aesthetic and functional concepts. So the structure is part of the aesthetic um, and, and they work sort of harmoniously as one thing. And those relationships that create harmony and create good collaboration, they really evolve over time as well. Like you hear of so many famous par partnerships between architects and engineers that go for a really, really long time, for decades of working together. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, another big focus for us is developing those non-transactional relationships. Like we, we really want to look to partner with people that, 
that understand and appreciate our value and involvement um, initially and, and that there's that, there's a real friendship, uh, I guess, and that, that evolution of synergy in thoughts and ideas and every time we sit down at the table to tackle a new problem, we're at least 1% better collectively and, and I love that. Yeah. Mm, that's so true. Yeah. And to having all those fresh ideas that come together and that's really the power of for a client to assemble a really good design team or have an architect on board that they trust that has connections with really great sub-consultants and people that we can all work together with. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and I think, uh, you know, and we do a lot of work in local government and speaking with project managers, it is something that they look for, that, that they do look for um, design consortiums that have had partnership for time because I think they do get a sense of appreciation, um, not only in, in terms of, in terms of maximising the design potential, but there's also a real risk mitigation there in terms of everyone knowing how everyone works uh, in terms of process and, and execution on time. And efficiently. That's the thing with procurement processes is they try and manage risk and the risk around things going wrong and things costing too much. And some procurement models or some ways of bringing a building into existence work better than others for creating better design outcomes. What, from your perspective as a, as a structural engineer and a subconsultant, do you find actually supports your intent and helps you deliver great structure, really efficient structural outcomes or innovative structural design yeah look i think it definitely comes with i mean our the clients that we love to work with are the ones that um have a combination of of practical and aspirational qualities um so they have the sense to be able to to run a project as a principal design consultant and then we work with them so they have the capacity to be the connection between us and the client and i feel like that's from a design perspective is probably the best model. Sometimes when on larger projects, there may need to be additional parties brought in to manage logistics, project managers, et cetera. And, and at times, sometimes that can that can deviate from, um, you know, it's that old adage of, of, of design by committee. Mm. That there's a compromise there. Um, but if we're able to have a relationship um, directly with the client, with our with our principal design consultant, the architect, I've, I've found that sort of gets the best result. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. That's an interesting point also to note for architects that the engineers are sizing them up as well as a partner, just as <laughs> much as we are, yeah, we are yeah, looking yeah, to no, get the yeah, best team yeah, on board. No, definitely. And, and I think that speaks to what you were saying before in terms of being able to create those long-term relationships. And I think it's important to have um, – uh, you know, and we aspire to work with people that have the same sort of cultural um, uh, uh, perceptions of culture and importance around people and, and, and working relationships. I think it's really important, yeah. What, what is one of the, some of the key goals of Argyle, some of your key, key design motivations and key structural motivations? Yeah, look, I think I think probably the main thing the main thing that we want to do is have a positive impact in local communities. So a lot of our work um, is focused on on, on public work, um, working you know, community centres, libraries, art galleries, that kind of thing. Um, that there's the capacity for those structures to to be to be utilised by the many and not the few um, is is a big talking point for us. And I think. Um, we kind of aspire to also um, have a brand that's built on that assertiveness and that fluid design phase in order to be able to work with um, our clients to try and 
maximize value. Um, and we find during that phase, uh, it also gives us the capacity to explore um, new materials and methodologies that could potentially be utilized to a project to make it unique and not the same as everything that's come before. Um, and sometimes, um, stereotypically in Victoria, in the past when I first sort of started out, the, um, the design process was quite linear in the sense where potentially architects had established a design and, and maybe also had sent it to planning and the structural engineer's responsibility was to Tetris the structure within the architectural profile so it didn't have that harmony. Um, so yeah, so working to create that harmony is, is really important and that also enables us to explore e ESD initiatives as well. Mm. Have you developed any tools to assist you with that in-house or how are you managing the responsibilities now around embodied carbon? I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a really, it's a really good question. I think, within, I think with embodied carbon, it's interesting, I think over the last 10 years working in local government, it's great that we're working towards embodied carbon being a counterpoint that actually gets executed as part of design. I think initially um, ESD objectives were limited to um, operational energy and reduction of that because there was cost benefits that came mm. across that. And you can measure that though. It's really easy to measure. Exactly, exactly. So so then the more the, – but as, as local government and other – government authorities that are, that are commissioning work, it's great that they're developing ESD matrices that are now creating mandates that need to be achieved as part of the design. So the ideas that we've got around um, carbon reduction that we're presenting aren't being costed out anymore, which is great because they're, 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 becoming, a, they're becoming a key point in the development of the design. Mm, a, a, real, a real staple in there. So we're seeing a lot of mass timber construction and I always wonder about some of the embodied carbon there in mass timber because where's where's it grown? Yeah, so look, we're we're really fortunate. Um, just recently, we we're working on a project uh, in uh, for the Borbor Shire um, where we had the opportunity to work with Australian Sustainable Hardwoods. Um, and uh, the great thing about working with them is uh, they're in uh, Hayfield, I think, um, and the timber is grown just north of Warrigal. So we had the opportunity to be able to design something that hasn't been built yet, but it's going to be built where the timber was sourced from uh, from just north of the site, um, shipped about an hour away, manufactured and then shipped back an hour, wow. which is yeah, we, we, yeah, which is great. And I That's think incredibly rare. Yeah, it, it is. It is. But I, I think um, I think more generally, there is uh, with uh, with I think um, point scoring around ASD initiatives with timber, um, there is more of a focus on the timber being local. Um, where in the past when the introduction of mass timber and CLT came into the industry, a lot of it was coming from overseas. And so the, the incentive of using it was kind of diffused a little bit because it wasn't coming from, uh, from, from, from local areas. So how's our local industry looking? Do we have enough scalability at the moment with local, local growers and manufacturers to supply you know, multi-million dollar projects, really quite larger scale construction? Yeah, so I think we were fortunate enough to go out to to, to Ash um, uh, to have a look at their site and their stockyard, and they have kilometres of timber ready to rock and roll. And so the only thing that's really inhibiting their capacity to to, 
to supply, I guess, is just the actual labour of executing the design. Uh, sorry, uh, of actually uh, of of fabricating uh, the timber elements. Um, uh, I think with the the confidence that the marketplace has been given by more of these objections, more of these ob- uh, ESD objectives being mandated, it's giving the industry a bit more confidence in being able to um, create a wider variety of materials and products. I, I think initially that with the the access to these elements that we had previously, um, there were some constraints in terms of what we could design, but as the tech, as there's more technology being invested into into um, mass timber and, and similar products is that there's a greater flexibility in what we can do as structural engineers in utilising these tools. That's really exciting. That That's really quick growth really in a short space of time because yep. it was at a point where using glue lamp, using CLT, it was all going to be imported. Yep. It was all going to come with a, with a premium. There's embodied carbon in the flight miles. That's right. Everyone's becoming more and more aware of that and just using timber because it looks natural and it's going to score us points for biophilic design or something Yeah, is, is, isn't going to be enough, but that's really promising. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 it's great. So, um, and, um, and I think the, the technology that's being used in the manufacturing locally is expanding now. So, um, that's... So say more. How, uh, how, how are we innovating locally compared to what's been available on the market? Okay, so I think with um, uh, another sort of initiative that on this particular project that we've utilised um, is, and I don't want to get too technical, but um, we've utilised a, a composite system that um, integrates timber and concrete. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the the lateral shear connection between the timber and the concrete enables the timber joists to span further. Um, so it means that potentially the spans that we could achieve with just cross-laminated timber panels um, has now been ex- extended. So on this particular project, we were able to take a sort of typical column grid in the basement car park, 8.4 metres by 8.4 metres, and be able to extrapolate that up through the building without having to reduce the spans and introduce more columns. So it gave a, a much greater freedom for our, for our architectural client to open the space up and, and be able to and be able to create, um, yeah, yeah. And use fewer materials as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. That's really amazing. Mm. And that was the Borbor project, did you say? That's correct, yeah. What else came up on the Borbor project for you? Yeah, well, the Borbor project was was an exciting one for us because um, with the, I guess, with the introduction of mass timber um, uh, and the push for utilising it more more often in order to achieve ESD objectives, um, from a building compliance point of view, um, the industry is moving away from flammable materials. So the utilisation of mass timber um, faces some challenges, especially when it's used externally on a building, um, in particular construction classes where you have multiple levels. Um, so a real challenge on that project for us was to be able to um, utilise um, that 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 relationship we have with our architect early days, also in partnership with the building surveyor and the fire engineer to initiate a way to create a building with very little fire protection to ensure that the timber could be exposed. And you do have that lovely feeling of being able to see and touch. That's it, about about to reach out and touch it. So so with that, um, we were able to devise a way that the 
that the steel facades were connected back to the mass timber superstructure in, in a manner that in a fire event they could melt and fall away. It wouldn't affect um, the structure um, and that the structure was designed to char in a fire event. So it didn't mean that there needed to be fire protection on there. So for, for the best part of that structure, uh, we were really excited that there was very little um, uh, a fire, fire protection and, um, and cladding that was needed. Is that one the b- below the snow line? Uh, yes. So yeah. You, you yeah. So that's in Warrigal. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Fair, fair bit below then. Yeah. 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 Although the funny things happen, you know, sometimes yeah, it does snow in the Dandenongs on Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Out here in Melbourne. So fu- funny yeah. things do happen like that. Yeah. I, I wonder, are we at the stage yet that we don't have to treat timber so heavily when it's used externally? Are we we're still requiring a lot of coatings, a lot of maintenance? Well, I, th- I think with with this particular project, what we what we did with the timber that was used externally, um, we provided canopies to ensure there wasn't any direct rainfall on the timber, and then in the areas where where the where columns and we had an external diagrid on one side that was exposed, um, we utilised concrete pedestals that that the timber could then connect into um, to to ensure that we could reduce the need for that. Plus um, I think that also always looks cute with little feet. It does. It does. Yeah. It, it look at it, it looks the, the renders and stuff look terrific. Um, and it also assists us in terms of warranties because providers want to ensure that the timber will continue to have that same luster um, without rigorous maintenance. And when you're working on projects for local government, it's important to be able to design things that look great but also are really robust. Um yeah. Are they expecting that one to silver off eventually? Uh, I think I think the the colour will the colour potentially will change a little bit, but but the way it's the application of it, I think will be that it's it, it'll be looking to try and maintain as much of the luster for its full design life. That's exciting, Andrew. I think yeah. you're restoring restoring my faith in mass timber. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, a, you, you lost faith, did you? I sort of when, when I learned that so much of it was imported, yeah. and how much embodied carbon there was. And the fire engineering issues that our industry is working through and grappling with and managing to resolve, mm. um, along with all the all the protection and maintenance challenges, it's sort of felt that not always were you going to get your value for money in that yeah. in that yeah. investment in both from a cost and a carbon perspective. Yeah. No, well, I, I think the cost perspective is slowly starting to come around and I think from a carbon perspective as well as there gets more confidence uh, in the marketplace, they'll, you know, the, the supply will continue to expand, I, I would imagine. And, and the flexibility and the technology and initiatives from an engineering perspective that we can provide our architectural clients with to maximise how cool this stuff looks will hopefully continue to grow and expand as well. And the composite panels sound absolutely amazing, getting getting timber and concrete Yeah, so Yeah, because effectively they provide the fire separation between the floors. So it means that when you're inside the space, you get to look up and see the beautiful beautiful, um, uh, mass timber joists exposed, which is great. This, this could be the future of of what it is an Australian architecture, of what is an Australian architecture, a question listeners that we often delve into on this program yeah. and that I think architects in this country have been chasing for at least 30, 40, 50 years yeah. to try and unpack what, what is it. Um, but if, if we're able to grow the supply... It's not just core 10. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not just core 10. <laughs> and it's not just corrugated iron. That's right. Yeah. Not, not just not just the colour bond that, yeah. we, that we have so much more available to us and, and so many more possibilities. I do want to pick your brain a bit on prefab and mm. whether you see that as a 
opportunity in the market or opportunity to offer people better design, like in the Muji homes that uh, we've seen around the internet for the last couple of years, or an opportunity to uh, mitigate the housing crisis to to address some of these questions of supply, demand and availability. Yeah, look, I think it's definitely something that, that we're seeing um, a lot more. Um, uh, I think more inspired on on cost savings, I think, and, and optimising um, construction from the builder's side of things, I think. Um, it's definitely something that we, when we work on projects that are a bit more remote, that we see utilised um, just in terms of getting skills and labour to those particular areas. Yeah, and just to make it feasible. Yeah, yeah. Look, and it's, it's definitely something that we consider and, and, and at times when we're going through that that sort of fluid design phase with our, with our clients, we'll, we'll identify the potential for, for prefabrication to be utilised and, and, maybe, and maybe bring in um, a construction expert to have a conversation around... I sort of wonder on mass though like if say uh, an architect decided oh, i've got this excellent idea for a house i'm going to prefab 50 of them and sell it yeah is that something that is actually possible in australia yeah look i i think so there's 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 companies like modscape that um that are that are working to sort of provide that and i think as well there's there's a chance there for for, for some low cost um uh, quick to construct um, for for homeowners that potentially may have saved up and they bought a block of land and they want to they're renting at the moment they want to move out there quickly that they are they are options to really reduce that time frame where you're mm. waiting for something to be to be completed uh, in, in construction by using modular homes um, and um, on a on a yeah but I think I think the experience that we've had is more um, driven from uh, driven driven from a construction perspective on, on the top of projects yeah. that we work on yeah yeah, yeah. you work in really large-scale uh, public projects mm-hmm. and all about community I do want to ask you one more crazy question because yeah. I get to ask this often and I give my response as best as I can but I never feel particularly well placed to address it and that's using shipping containers for housing yeah. Okay. Well, we we actually use shipping containers. I was very fortunate to be involved in the Predators Precinct at the Melbourne Zoo, uh-huh. and um, and the architectural language that they were looking there was for a Melbourne style industrial kind of um, you know, Fitzroy style feel with okay. street art. Um, and we were able to use shipping containers as part of some of the exhibits and some of those actually cantilever out into the snow leopards enclosure with glass, etc. Um, in terms of housing, look, it's not something that, that, we've, that we've been involved in, but I have taken interest in, and, I, and I do love to see those before and afters where someone will have eight shipping containers and create something pretty weird and wonderful with connections between each of them. Yeah. A swimming pool. You can also buy swimming pools now that yeah, a shipping right. container just gets craned in. That's cool. That's cool. Above above ground or cantilevering and, and suspending. Yeah. yeah. Well, so the jury's out on the shipping container question. For me, it's yeah. something that always requires so much work to make it habitable, comfortable, insulated, code compliant. That by the time you've used all that material, you might have done it differently to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and obviously, it's there's it obviously puts some rigid constraints on space and connection as well. Yeah. yeah. We've talked a lot about how the industry has changed and already rapid change in the in the last few years with CLT. I want to ask about in the way you provide your services with BIM, how has engineering consulting grown or how has, how has BIM changed your lives really? 
Well, I mean, BIM's great, and I think I might have heard this with the discussion you had with one of your um, one of your other guests previously. Is just that um, we as architects and engineers um, grow up on being able to read plans and elevations, but buildings don't exist in plans and elevations; they exist in perspective. And the fantastic thing about BIM is being able to illustrate that perspective to anyone, so they get a sense of what it is you're doing and how you're building it. Um, and being able to have that communication is is fantastic. Um, uh, specifically in the structural sector. Um, yeah, uh, throughout your career. Yeah, yeah. Well, you utilize. I mean, util- the utilization of of Revit and how we've been able to optimize and speed and create form. So a, a big a big passion of mine is to be able to create buildings with interesting form. And, and BIM has in, enabled us to create curves and shapes and forms that potentially would have been very difficult to coordinate and design um, previously on, on a scale of a community-based project. Like bending um, steel in two directions. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's cool. It's cool. And, and, and so BIM's been fantastic uh, to be able to facilitate that for us um, and be able to help us communicate that with with the, with the architects. Um, I think BIM, an interesting thing with BIM though, I think is um, uh, the next generation of architects though, I think I was really fortunate in my development um, with my mentors were these great people that had the capaci- capacity to sort of design things in their mind's eye with very little sketching and be able to communicate that. And I was equally as fortunate to have architectural clients that you could sit around for a couple of hours with some butter paper and envisage something without building a BIM model. Obviously, the days before the luxury, was BIM. Andrew, the, da- luxury. the days before it was BIM, um, and, and, you know, and, and potentially now the evolution of the next generation of architect, maybe I'm concerned, maybe he's lost that capacity to design in their mind's eye now. And, and there may be a potentially a reliance a little bit too much on the, on the model in order to evolve. But, but look, but having the model to evolve designs is, it, it is invaluable once that initial concept has been developed. That's an interesting point. Sometimes I feel that we show the client too much, especially with the advancement of live render engines. Yeah. Where it's already there, it already exists, and in three seconds you can show any angle, any facet. Yeah. And so we're all under pressure to document more, get more into the model, get yeah. more into into the render, and then provide too many renders almost in, in yeah. a way that where's that trust and mystery how do you sneak in a sneaky surprise pink bathroom somewhere? Well, that's the thing and that's probably a question for you in terms of the way that you utilise it. I'd be interested to know um, has that created issues in terms of when you are assessing that or when you're showing an initial concept and there's a form and it's really well executed, there's no sort of gaps in there and then are you sort of bound to that as you evolve because the client loves it? Mm, good question. Well, I, I think... You've got to quarantine it. In my in my personal opinion, mm. you can really utilize your ability to see everything and that it walk through the whole model as a quality assurance thing in house and yeah. in your design process and be like, yeah, we we've done that correctly. That's been mm. captured. That's been documented. Uh, we've done that well. I imagine for residential clients, that's super important because they're they're paying to know every single nook and cranny. Yep. So resi clients, so you've got to walk them through everything. Yeah. But I imagine some of the more public clients one should be a bit more judicious about what they show and be really selective about those key views key renders key big ideas because it's not their building it's actually the public's building 
and the government has trusted the architect as the principal design consultant to deliver something amazing for the community. Yeah, great. So the project managers that you're dealing with or the people you're dealing with, hmm. their job is to make the building real and to help you make the building real. Yeah. Not to offer design critique. Subjective opinion. Exactly. Yeah. Not, yeah. not to offer subjective opinions or that dreaded design by committee. Yeah. Designed by nobody in the end, right? Yeah, of course. No, cool. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. And look, and I think as well, BIM, in terms of responsibilities, it's something to be concerned about as well. I think um, in the construction industry, um, when I first started out working with these fantastic builders that would be able to work with a sketch off the back of an envelope and be able to make it come to life, where now there's such a reliance on model and there's such a reliance on BIM and when everything doesn't exactly connect, no one's taking the responsibility to sort of drive that and bring that together. Mm. Um, so that's something to be conscious of as well. But I think just in general with BIM and working towards a sort of ISO 19650 future landscape it's pretty exciting like, that's for listeners that's the quality assurance standard for yeah. in-house process management yeah sorry um <laughs> so yeah so that's just that's i guess that's the gold star i guess internationally we're kind of working towards um and um and so you know it, it, the, the evolution of of bim towards that will hopefully get or i can sort of see the idea of heading out to site with the roller drawings will be a thing of the past there'll be models that that will be able to tell that full picture Sure. That's yeah. what iPads are for already. Yeah. yeah. But really the, the dose makes the poison and it's really important for capable and passionate informed consultants and you know, principal design consultants, architects and engineers to uh, maintain that authorship over what they're working on as yeah. well, in my opinion, and help, help guide the community, help guide their client and the people they're working with through the process. Yeah. That's why people are like, oh, you're worried about AI? No. Like, good luck doing it without us. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. But look, I think I think it, there's some there's some pretty exciting AI initiatives in talking about our industry and BIM, um, uh, and I guess the commercial application of design uh, using using Tecla, uh, which is you know a software that's potentially more typically used more for shop drawings. But there's artificial intelligence being in, in, embedded into that, which is pretty exciting in terms of being able to connect the dots on. Um, on bringing designs together faster. Um, so, but I think, yeah, the the architect uh, in the in the more literal sense of bringing pay, pacing out how the whole thing's going to come together will will always be there. But the AI may be the tools that help us shorten the gap to get to where we need to get to. Yeah, to yeah. optimize the workflow. Although yeah. you did make me nervous there when you said that AI is going to be doing the shop drawings that we're no, all going to no, have to no, review no, in no. the end. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like an ordeal. Yeah. It, it's bad enough that builders don't even necessarily check things before they send it to us. That's let, right. That's let, right. Let alone if AI is going to be drawing it. Um, what What are some of your your favorite moments in since you started Argle? A quite a youthful company now. Still, with, you're still within your first decade. Yeah. Look, I think I think probably when I get asked this question, I think my most proudest achievement is the is the team and culture that that we've been able to foster. Um, uh, and, and it's been great to see in recent years it's um, the evolution of that and the energy from that's not being driven by me anymore it's being driven by my team um, and that that makes me really happy um, and it's great to see um, uh, their development and their ideas come to the forefront and the overall brand of our business is is from that sense of diversity is growing beyond what I 
you know, what I initially anticipated it was, um, uh, was possible, which is really exciting. That's awesome. How many people on your team now? Uh, 10, 10 on our team. 10, that's massive. Mm, yeah, that's great. And everyone is a structural or civil engineer. That's correct. Yeah. 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 That's great. You do your own drawings as well. Yeah. Oh no, we've got, we've got, um, no, sorry. We've got, we've, we've got a few Revit documenters in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but we do, we, we are, we do really like that initial sort of phase to be driven by the engineers, um, in communication and partnership with the architects, sketching and doing all those fun things at the start. What's been a really memorable project for you that you've completed so far? Look, um, uh, probably the the one we were discussing, I think, just before we went on air, um, which I think you might have been involved in a little bit early days, um, the, the Flemington Design Hub uh, is a particular um, – particularly proud of that project. Um, uh, we were, I was really fortunate to be a, um, an employee of ours, Nahum, who was the project engineer on that project, um, attended the open day. Um, and took some videos and photos of the local community. It's right next to um, uh, uh, public housing sector and all those people in there utilising the building was just great. Right um, next to the towers in Flemington. That's right, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that was, yeah, that, that was that was pretty great. So it was one of those moments you sort of sit back and because you can kind of get caught in the detail at times and you lose, lose focus of, of the impact of what you're doing. Um, and it was good to sit back and reflect on that recently. Yeah. And why you're doing it. Yeah, for sure. Do you find that architects are often communicating that meaning to you or it's something you have to stay self-motivated for? I think, I think, I think, I think it's probably something we have to stay self-motivated for, but it's definitely a passion that you share and, and, and partnering with, um, with the, the right teams. It's, it's evident that you've both got that passion, I think. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes designing stuff enjoyable for us. That's a lesson to any architects listening, I think, to convey those ideas and what you're actually doing and what the big ideas behind the project are to the rest of your team. Yeah, and definitely. And keep, keep reminding them who it's for and why you're doing it because we can get stuck into the nitty-gritty and the argy-bargy of trying to make it work. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And um, and it's, yeah, because I, I think it generally uh, the reason why we all become designers to some extent is because we want to create um, and evolve and, and design something that's better each time. Um, so, um, yeah, being conscious of that and talking about that in amongst that design team, yeah, is important. You're right. I, I want to ask you a little bit more about structural systems. This is my own uh, nerdy curiosity, yeah. sort of p- pursuing that direction. And do you do you see us getting more innovative projects, uh, products rather, sorry, on the market c- coming through? Are we going to be using you know structural insulated panels? Are we going to be using more mixed construction methodologies? Um, look, I think. I think in the I think in the near future the push towards mass timber is going to be huge, um, and I think um, uh, I'm not terribly across um, the new changes that are going to be happening with Melbourne City Council. But having a chat with a couple of the team at Claire Cousins' office just before Christmas, they were talking about um, that inner city block there is going to be a push towards Green Star, um, and there'll be sort of mandatory even across some private to private um, uh, construction, I believe. So I kind of feel there's really going to be a push towards mass timber. Um, I think 
uh, as well, um, talking uh, previously about um, prefab. I think prefab is going to be something um, that will um, will uh, enable us to build faster um, and, and reduce construction times. Um, There's been so much chatter around gutting uh, old office towers, you know, with the advent of hybrid work and some people have been choosing to work from home permanently hmm. that just – Companies don't need such big offices. They don't need whole floor plans, whole floor plates and towers. Yeah. And that that could be uh, stripped out and repurposed as apartments. From, uh, you know, back of the envelope feasibility sort of perspective, do you think that's a, a possible ambition, a likely ambition for us go- going forward to adaptively reuse that building stock going from commercial into residential? Yeah, look, I, I, I think so. And I, I think adaptive reuse to support speaking about those ESD initiatives that are starting to become more present uh, in in some of the local government stuff that we've got adaptive reuse and materials is is at the forefront of that and uh, I think but in order for in order for that to for, to happen on a on a larger scale I think it's it's really going to be driven commercially um, yeah. but um, but yeah with haven't been involved uh, in anything in, 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 but yeah, but the, the, the idea of being able to take something old like that and bring it back to life would be pretty, expi- pretty inspiring. I don't think anyone's really done it much, but you can imagine that you've got these mass, humongous concrete structural grids, floor plates, columns, stick apartments between them, pop out some of the curtain wall panels, even replace them to be operable. Yeah. That we use on high rises and this sort of seems like there's possibility there, but I guess people are still working on the business case. Yeah, for sure. Look, we're really fortunate we're being involved um, in a project in Dandenong um, where there was a power works that has, um, I think, some technology that potentially fell by the wayside. And it's this big, beautiful concrete building that we're turning into um, a, a an arts precinct effectively with performance spaces and stuff. And, and being involved in that project is is fantastic. Um, obviously, it's a bit of a smaller scale than a massive big office block, um, yeah. but um, yeah, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's great being able to um, yeah explore and uh, ways to to be able to um, yeah reuse old stuff. Mm. We've talked about sustainability in terms of carbon and some of the more obvious phenomena of making the right material decisions and whether you can you know, grow it or whether you have to extract it from the ground. Yeah. But I wonder about time and the longevity of a material and how that can affect our understanding of sustainability and whether in some instances concrete actually is a more sustainable choice. Yeah, and I think that comes down to um, uh, forecasting and understanding um, the evolution of the des- of the actual service life of the building, um, and yeah, I would happen to agree that there are materials that potentially are a bit more sustainable in terms of longevity, but um, the issue that we find is and that we've found with with design those buildings that are kind of within their design life um, uh, that were built say 90s that we're seeing coming down all around Melbourne. Um, uh, so what we need to do is, as designers is to is to um, identify how we can design things that have a greater degree of flexibility and functionality for, for times to come. And I think that on a community basis with the public architecture that we work with, there is always that um, uh, 
that focus in being able to create flexibility in spaces. Can you myth bust something for me? Because I saw it in my um, Instagram reels and social media, this little vid- informative video, and you never know if things are true, that apparently Roman concrete had un fully lime that was chunky or not fully dissolved in particles and so when it got hit by the rain the lime then helped fill the cracks and kind of self-repair the roman concrete is that true oh i i don't know but they did use like a limestone based mortar uh, in order to connect the block so there could be some truth to that we'll uh We'll keep looking. Yeah. We just had a text come through from an anonymous texter. Thank you. What advice can you give to someone who wants to get into the profession? Is it a good choice for young people in your opinion? Um, structural engineering. Yeah, I think oh, so. That's great. It's fantastic. Um, look, look, I think in engineering engineering um, um, as a career is is fantastic. Um, there's a lot of flexibility, I think, in engineers – um, identifying um, that sense of wanting to solve problems um, and create. Um, you don't have to necessarily know exactly how you want to do that or where you want to do that when you start on your journey with engineering. There's flexibility for you to evolve and move into different sectors. Um, with structural engineering, there's a variety of different disciplines, project disciplines that you can that you can work into. But as I sort of said before, I always had that focus on uh, architectural design, so I always kind of knew, knew where I was going. Um, but yeah, there is a lot of diversity, um, and you know the wonderful thing, wonderful thing about engineering, it's built on the pra- on practices um, that have been around for thousands of years, and it's and it's international. You can go anywhere with it. Yeah, and if you're a real sucker for punishment, you can do a double degree: yeah. architecture and engineering. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> if you really want to ruin your own day, yeah, <laughs> that's probably a bit much. No, no, I think they're, they're you know, as I sort of said before, working with Peter Felicetti, he had, had uh, two degrees and um, that led to some inspired thinking. Um, yeah. And, and I guess partnerships with people in the industry as well. Yeah, and really uh, in- innovative creation and innovative architecture. And sometimes the, if the architect is confident in the engineering solution, then they can take risks and they can be bolder and braver and come up with maybe something crazy in you or impossibly thin. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Where do you see the industry moving to in the future, particularly as larger scale government construction seems to unfortunately be quite interested in novation and DNC contracts, Sunnovate, Sun Construct Novate? Yeah, look, it's something that we're, especially um, during um, – times of uncertainty that we've had recently with inflation. Um, a lot of our um, government clients have been looking to mitigate their risk and pushing towards um, uh, DNC and us being novated across the builder. Um, it, it's, it, I think it, it, it can be successful and, and there is some silver. I mean, it, Construct Only uh, enables, I guess, just that, that sense of getting exactly what you want out of the design and seeing the full potential of that being um, being achieved is is pretty exciting and it's it's sort of what I've sort of grown up on and I really enjoy being part of that process. But but it's also it's also the DNC process. There is some advantages to it in terms of um, being able to um, reach into the industry and, and and you know negotiate with subcontractors on some additional initiatives that can be brought into the building at the conclusion. Um, so there are some, there are some advantages there, um, uh, but um, 
but yeah, it, it is. It, it, we we love a construct only um, yeah. contract and being able to see the initial design ideology come to life. Yeah, and a traditional and a traditional lump sum. Yeah, and that's really the way. Who listeners who maybe will be building their own home and may need some engineering input uh, will we'll be making that house real. And quite commonly, if it's just a residential project, the the client will be engaging the structural engineer themselves and their, their yeah. architect, architect will recommend who, who to go with. But uh, I was wondering in case out there listeners who are tuning in tonight are wondering, looking to buy a house, I'm looking to even you know, build a house, looking to pick a site. What are some big picture considerations people should consider um, yeah. When they go through that process, yeah. Look, I, I think I think a big I think in terms of purchasing a house, um, it's always incredibly important to to get your building inspector's report, um, uh, especially from a structural perspective. But it's also it's also important to understand the history um, uh, and they're potentially the questions sometimes that don't get asked. Um, you know, how long's the building been there? What's the evolution of the ground conditions? Because the ground the ground can be the ground can be your enemy when it comes to um, especially buildings sort of midway or nearing the end of their design life in terms of differential settlement. So you know, potentially there's been a, a wonderful renovation happened to a house where a big tree's got planted out the front. Um, but the impact of that tree on the ground conditions and the potential impact that that might have on the tree after you purchase the property may actually relieve, it may actually result in some cracking to your house. So it's important to understand when and how trees have been added or removed to a site. Um, also, uh, drainage is another big thing too. So drainage has the same impact on the ground conditions, whether there's been faulty drainage that's been that the house has learnt to live with over a long time and then that gets replaced and then the drainage is working well, then, then the house will have to deal with the ground drying up as well. So there are a couple of things to be conscious of. Um, in terms of a new site, um, a, a green site, again, ground conditions are something in terms of costs. Um, it's good to understand what you're dealing with uh, because potentially on a on a green site where there's been a lot of material pushed around, there's a likelihood the whole entire house will have to be suspended um, on uh, on on deep footings, which potentially might cost you a few extra dollars. Because the ground's not actually stable; they had to clear that's right. and having, that, it hasn't compacted over time. That's right, and they've sort going. of graded and pushed it to achieve the levels. And there might be sort of you know half a meter to a meter's worth of fill material just floating on your site that you need to penetrate through in order to found your house. There you go. Mm. And as always, listeners, if in doubt, get a structural inspection report, get a building report before you go ahead with the purchase. Definitely. And we tell you all the time, clean your gutters, clean your downpipes. Yeah, that's it. Clean your stormwater. Yeah, that's it. It looks And, and you know, and at times in a purchase, that price, um, you know, might be a bit it's 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 it's, a, it's definitely worth your weight in gold. We've just had a text message come in, and I'm smiling because this is really funny. It's completely anonymous and also a number I really don't recognise. So we've not had a message from this person before, and they're saying, "Andrew Gall, do you ski? Do I ski? <laughs> no, I don't ski. <laughs> you might have to after all those site visits up towards the Borbor project. That's yeah, I'll have, I'll, have, I'll have to work on I'll have to work on my skills. There you go. Mm-mm. That's that's really funny. Thank you no, to all I, I think Texas I, know, I think I know who that is, and he's a cheeky devil. <laughs> <laughs> you figured that one out. Oh, yeah. that, that's that's really fantastic. Yeah. Uh, um. What are what are what are some moments that restore your faith in the profession? Because 
I think in the industry, we have to do so much problem solving. Mm. We have to respond quickly to builders' questions. We have to figure out a solution. We have to save a ton of money when we suddenly don't have it and we've gone over budget. Mm. And there's a lot of difficult days. And they're all worth it because then you go to the opening and you remember why you're doing it. Yeah. Hopefully throughout the, the process, you keep yourself motivated too. You keep each other motivated and you yeah. remember why you're doing it. Um, but what also gives you hope in that process? I think it's the, I think it's the people and the relationships that you form, I think. Um, and um, because, you know, design is, it's teamwork. You don't do it on your own and there's a, an array of, much smarter people than you in different areas that you need to rely on. And to be able to find that team um, and, and that harmony, whether it's internally or externally with the other contributors, that's where it gets enjoying. That's when it gets enjoying and then being able to celebrate the success at the end of the project with those people. In addition to seeing the positive impact it has, um, being able to celebrate that success is, um, is important. Yeah. What gives you hope in the big picture? Hope in the big picture. Um, I think that, um, well, f- f- for me personally, I think I touched on it before, um, just the confidence in my own team and the fact that um, I'm, I'm excited about where we're going to go and what we're going to achieve. And, and there's a, I guess there's a sense of hope potentially and, and confidence there. Yeah. That, well, that's what a great leader should have, right? No, knowing that you trust your team and you back your team yeah, towards that success. Yeah. Had another text message come in. Previously, most houses were built on stumps. Now, most are built on concrete slab. Apart from cost considerations, what is the best option from your point of view for stability? Um, well, I th- uh, yeah, there's... I think they're talking residential. Yeah. Re- yeah single t- family home. Talking residential. Look, I, I, I think the, the, the evolution of construction sort of shifted from isolated strip footings and isolated pad footings, the suspended floor, um, when we used to build those big, beautiful, gravity-fed masonry buildings that you're seeing in the 1940s in the inner eastern suburbs and then the evolution kind of shifted towards sort of more mass production of housing and the western suburbs the 60s and 70s where you've got isolated strip footings and floating slabs and then i think the general that then that pushed towards um uh, stiff and raft slabs um as, as a shallow footing solution um that 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 it, that it that is probably, I guess, the best solution because it enables um, you to protect yourself from the moisture and everything that's happening underneath the floor um, and also be able to design something that's stiff enough to deal with those factors we are talking before around differential settlement and movement um, to protect your walls, especially you've got a beautiful masonry clad building. Keeps all the critters out. Keeps the critters out. Helps yeah. you keep the house a bit warmer. That's right. Look, and also, especially in a residential application, utilising a slab, um, you, can, you can potentially um, either float a hydronic screed on top of that slab or incorporate hydronic coils into the slab itself. So you've got a nice, big, beautiful thermal mass that will keep you warm and, and reduce your energy consumption in the winter. Put a big, beautiful window to the north and... That's right. That's it. The slab yep. heats up and that's yep. solar passive design. Yeah, yeah. Well, you don't even have to turn on the hydro then. can be in a t-shirt in yep. winter. Yeah. And that's just the magic of getting some of those basic principles and the basic building science right. Definitely. And that's the importance of trusting and in, in, in understanding, um, you know, the, the appreciation for good design. 
Yeah. A house mm. isn't just a house, which is a house, which is a house. Mm. Some of those, some of those things will really change how you live, how you, how, how big your bills are that you're paying mm. each month and just how comfortable you feel in a home. Yeah. I want to ask you one more question on this on this resi resi topic before we do wrap wrap up, and that's sure. uh, you mentioned some of the evolution and construction. Did we ever have a golden age or a golden period in Australia where you know from a particular era, certain residential construction is more reliable for the purchase, or that it was done really well, or it's sort of horses for courses? What do you, what do look, you think? Uh, there? Look, I think it's a bit of a horses for courses. I think depending on where you want to buy in Melbourne, you will see the evolution of that construction um, over time. Um, and I guess to some extent, each of those constructions has their own advantage in terms of cost and 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 and, and what you get out of it. Um, I definitely have my own personal opinion of what I like the most, um, so I don't want that to. Pray tell. Yeah, I don't want that to blur my my, my response here. I want to ask now, though. Um, what is it? No, no, no. I'm going to keep that under wraps so I can answer this question for you. But look, I, I think I think that the, the shift towards um, uh, the construction methodologies that are being used now for Resi will will bring about a longer design life for your house, and they will also incorporate um, those sort of sustainability objectives. So I think, um, yeah, in, in talking historically um, with construction, um, there's the old adage that they don't build them like they used to. There definitely is some truth in that um, in terms, especially in terms of buildings that were built in that period through the 60s and 70s and 80s, which may not have that same degree of durability as potentially structures that came before that. Mm. And also the, the change in the trades and the skills and the labour that we've seen over time really. Definitely, there was yeah, and, and I yeah, I think that's that's true, and, and that's even true today. Um, as 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 things evolve uh, over time, and and you sort of grow into becoming a, a grumpy old designer, you yeah. realise, oh, geez, that, that the guys aren't quite as good as what they used to be. Um, I, I think in construction as well, we were really, I was really blessed when I first started on my engineering journey, that the site managers for the sites that I was working on, they were all these wonderful gentlemen that had been trade on trades for 20 years that evolve into site managers and they had this great sense of understanding of how to solve problems and I was just along for the journey to structurally justify those solutions where now it, it tends to be that there's a there's a lot of paper that gets pushed around and questions that get asked but potentially the the sites don't have those those great those great people that are kind of um, solving problems as they go along. There's a real reliance on the consultants to do that mm. when things pop up on site. And so important that the construction industry finds a way to capture or preserve all that knowledge definitely. before those people fully retire, before they step out of the sector. Yeah, definitely. Or it gets replaced with robots, yeah. which is my last crazy question. I promise it's the last another uh, question. And that's 3D printing. Is Is it just a sort of... Something we see on the internet, the odd house and design, or do you think, or you know, terraforming on Mars or the moon bases? Do you think it has a real future for us? Look, I think there's potential capacity. I, I mean, there's something that 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 I've always been interested in and looked into is is creating smaller modules kind of like your lego so there's these little things that work perfectly in compression that have a whole bunch of air built into them that are really cheap and easy to build and building blocks um 
and, and, and I do I do think that there's potentially a future in utilizing that sort of technology for cost effective construction that both is structurally sound and has insulation. I think I've properties. seen those things on social media. What are they made out of? Um, I think there's, there's a variety. Of, oh, I don't know exactly what you're talking yeah. about or, 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 or what you've been looking at. They look like at. massive Lego that you just tessellate and it comes. Oh no, comes yeah, together. I, I think I've seen those. So yeah. I, I was talk, I was talking more potentially on a larger scale where you've got these little cool sort of tetrahedral things that have little compression struts in them. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, no, I, I definitely I think that I think that te- that technology will naturally evolve into um, a product. I, I don't think I've seen that product yet. Yeah, I definitely think that there's some life in that. Maybe one day we'll turn into bees and live in honeycomb because of the uh, epic rigidity of that geometry. Yeah, Yeah, well, I mean, nothing beats nature. And on all we're doing, all we're doing as engineers is is replicating those the same dynamics that make a tree stand up and not blow over in the wind. Uh, You know, it's that's that's it. Nothing beats nature. So yes, so maybe we'll be living in beehives (laughs) before you know it. An awesome idea to end on. Thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight, Andrew. We've covered so many different facets, and but really just scraped the surface of Thank what you. is structural. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Carrium Studio on Bonnarong Country. You can replay the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Josie from Space Folk, and when I want to stay groovy, I listen to Radio Caram. Cause, cause you're my-